A while back, Roske was trying to write a book that was going to make him an expert. It was a book that would, as he put it, get him on the shows. He wasn't having much fun. And then he read How Literature Saved My Life, where David Shields wonders about himself and literature through a lot of short, playful entries. Reading that book gave Ross permission to be writing stuff that felt fascinating, not only because it was like interesting so-called subject matter, but because it was like the unfolding understanding of who I might be. This week on Interstates, Ross Gay and I talk about his latest book, The Book of More Delights. It drops on Tuesday about his relationship to that most basic unit of writing, the sentence, about digression, and about how part of being an adult is accepting that people do things for reasons they don't always understand, ourselves included. But first, as you know, this is a public radio show. Not only that, it's a local public radio show handcrafted in the studios of WFIU Bloomington. And we also use local ingredients. Ross Gay may be a nationally known writer, but he's also a local. As are Honey Hodges, Todd Burkhardt, and Joyce Jeffries. Just about everyone I've spoken with has some insight into Southern Indiana. So much of our media is national, but you can't get an in-depth understanding of your community that way. That's what we do here on Interstates. And your support makes that happen. If it matters to you to be able to listen to thoughtful conversations and stories about life in Indiana, support our work. Call 800-662-3311 or go to wfiu.org slash donate. And thanks. Okay, let's get to it. In Annie Dillard's book, The Writing Life, she tells us a story about a famous writer visiting a college campus. A college student came up to him and asked, do you think I could be a writer? The famous writer responded, well, do you like sentences? Dillard goes on, if he had liked sentences, of course, he could begin. Like a joyful painter I know, I asked him how he came to be a painter. He said, I liked the smell of paint. I thought of this story because a few weeks ago I was chatting with Ross. If you listen to the show often, you probably know him. He's been on a good bit. And if you don't listen to the show, but you read books, you also have a good chance of knowing him, since he's written a bunch of them, including Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, The Book of Delights, Inciting Joy. Anyway, Ross and I were chatting, and he asked if I'd read any good sentences lately. It was not a surprising question coming from Ross. As a writer, Ross seems especially interested in the sentence as a form. I would think most writers would be. Remember what Annie Dillard said a second ago. But Ross especially. Along with very digressive sentences in his essays, he's got a book-length poem, Beholding, that consists of one long one that actually never ends. I used to love writing long sentences, but I don't do it so much anymore, because these days when I'm writing, I'm usually writing for you, dear listener, and long, convoluted, or just digressive sentences are harder to follow. Which is to say, it might have been envy that made me want to talk about long, convoluted sentences, and short ones too, with Ross. So I just wonder how you're thinking about sentences these days. It's such a great question. And I do think audience is a big thing about it. Like when you talk about it, in a way, it doesn't it doesn't have to do anything with the audience's desire or anything or relationship to the sentence. It more has to do with like sort of the the way that they're taking the sentence in, I guess. And I learned that so acutely this year when I was reading the delights for the audiobook. And I have all of these parenthetical, sometimes long parenthetical things, and they're like you might call them mini digressions. But on the page, they're just fine. <laughs> and, and when I'm reading them out loud, I realize like, oh, these are not that easy to, to read, to communicate. Like they, I'll, I'll kind of introduce in the middle of a sentence an idea, and then the sentence goes on and on and on. And, and that idea, because it was in a parenthetical, it sort of jets through. It's just like, it's hard. It's hard. And so it made me think, and I changed some of them for the audiobook. Like I kind oh, yeah. of revised them a little mm-hmm. bit. So that's one thing that I want to say. Like the sen- the context is is sort of significant, like where the sentences exist. That being said, 
I'm really, really interested in the ways that our thinking is documented. And I think sentences can do that. You know, I think a sentence can kind of be like the, the artifact or the... Artifact's not exactly the right word, but it's the, it's the evidence of the transformation that the thinking makes happen. And for me, and I think probably for a lot of people, that is not like a straight shot. That's often kind of digressive and wandering and, you know, you got to go over here to get over here. And I'm really interested in that. And I'm interested in it for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons being that I'm interested in how people change. And I'm interested in watching people change. You know, myself included, (laughs) even from the beginning of a sentence to the end of a sentence. That's fascinating to me. Like, damn, you used to think that, you know, 48 (laughs) words ago. (laughs) Back at the top of the letter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you're pushing out against like what we want to expect from the focused clarity of a sentence. And I was kind of wondering if that has anything to do with how you feel about institutions? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny that the sentence is called a sentence. Yeah, that's true. You know, and that you mentioned the book Beholding, which is a book length poem about where I sort of ruminate on and digress from this move of Dr. J's from the 1980 NBA finals. And, and it was actually in a class with J. Cameron Carter, this theologian, writer, beautiful writer and thinker, where I can't remember what he said, but he was sort of talking about, I don't know. He was talking about grammar or, I don't know, he was talking about something about language. <laughs> but I, I think it was in that class where I was like, oh, this book, which I had been thinking of as a one-sentence book, I had to take the period off the end because I wanted to unsentence the thinking, you know? And I was thinking very much of it, like like to, to take it out of a, a confinement, you know? And I think, so that you note that, I think you're noting something that, yeah, I do... Whether or not I'm always thinking about it, sometimes I'm just like having fun, you know, just like plainly, just like having fun. Yeah. But sometimes I'm for sure trying to figure out ways, probably inside of what you might call the institution of the sentence, though I never had before. <laughs> I never Sorry. thought of it like that. It's pretty good. <laughs> How you can kind of twist it all up so that maybe it doesn't even look like what it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's also the, another thing I was thinking about when you were, when you were asking the question was that and thinking about audience, is that I'm so much like, I relate to my work so much as someone who reads his work. And so I'm always in my head prepared to have my body there to kind of mediate what's hard hard to get without me there. So I do, there is something also about the body. And I don't know exactly what it is, but I, but there is some sense of like, I'm always imagining myself there being like, oh, this thing, and then like, just, just hold that. And then let's go over here for a while, you know, and you could do that real good with your hands. You could like test someone on the elbow and be like, hang on, hang on. You got that? And then <laughs> that can be a little trickier on a page or in an audiobook. but it's still fun to try. <laughs> still worth trying. Yeah, yeah. It's worth trying. And it's just like one more example of how uh, how much bodies are important and like touching yeah. and or communicating with our hands yeah. and our, you know, gestures and yeah. our eyes. Yeah. You know, whether even if you're on stage and you can't like t- literally touch yeah. the shoulder of everyone in the yeah. audience, although I wouldn't put it past you to <laughs> <laughs> go through and do that. But <laughs> and, and the question is, like, are there ways inside of the language that we're using or inside of the forms that we're using or inside of the methods that we're using that you can kind of almost do that? Is there a way that an address in a sentence can approach, can be almost like having your hand on someone's shoulder, you know, is it? I also think it's interesting, too, that we're talking about this because we both come out of these sort of, whatever you'd call it, more bodily practices, like theater, Mm -hmm. poetry, stuff like that, where you're not, you're, you're very infrequently not thinking about your body in space and people regarding your body. Which I think is not how a lot of people think about writing books. Totally. At all. (laughs) At all. Yeah. I think people often, because I think it often is, like people sort of a certain kind of, a particular kind of solitude that, that, yeah, that isn't like imagining itself beyond the page, like getting it on a stage, say, and sharing the work. Right. Or whatever. But yeah, what, what do you think about that? Well, where my mind went, honestly, was when you said a particular kind of solitude, I was thinking about how your this book really i think the first book of delights 
all the recent all your recent books are so much in conversation with so many other people. Yeah, you know, yeah. and like you can see in the books you like talk about writing the delights, you know, out in a cafe yeah. or whatever. But it's just so clear how much all the people you're connected with become part of the writing. Yeah. And you're, you know, maybe you're sometimes alone when you're writing, but right. it's so easy to picture you just like sort of, it feels like a conversation yeah. so yeah. much with, with other people. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean it to be that way. Yeah. 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 And I feel like the, when it's most interesting to me, the writing is when, you know, because I'm having a conversation with myself. Right. But myself is made up of a lot of people. <laughs> So it's very fun. Like sometimes when I'll be reading, when I would be reading one of these essays as I was tightening them up, say to Stephanie, my partner, and I would, I would say something and she would say, wait a second, what about blah, 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 blah. And I'd be like, hang on. Because in a way I would have been anticipating the conversation. And then the next sentence would answer the question that she had for the, <laughs> in a way, because, you know, that's, I don't know. I think of it as like a kind of dialogic thinking that I'm doing all the time. That's how I write. When I, well, I think when I'm at my most interesting, like I'm sort of having a conversation with myself. And again, myself is, you're one of myself. You know, all of these people whose questions, ideas, stuff is in my head, you know. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear about Ross's discovery that writing can be, maybe should be, kind of fun. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Plenty of writers see what they do as a kind of conversation. And, you know, talking with people is pretty fun, right? That's not how a lot of people see the process of writing, though. In one of the delights in the new book, Ross talks about encountering David Shields' book, How Literature Saved My Life, and how it kind of saved his writing life. It's so interesting. I feel like I was introduced to this book. I found this book shortly after I can remember reading a little bit of a book that I was working on to you, and maybe Dave was there, I can't remember, another friend of ours. And then I was going to back east for a while on a fellowship, and I was gonna be working on a book about my relationship to the land, ostensibly, but I had this idea that it, it was gonna be like a it was going to be like a really authoritative book about black farming and about like history and about X, Y, and Z. And it was going to make you an expert. It was going to make me an expert. And, and in here I say it and I actually mean it. It was going to, it was going to get me invited onto the shows. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. I was just like, I don't know. I'd love to talk to that person. But, but I, um, it sucked. It was it was it was a miserable sort of I mean so instructive and interesting but it was just in terms of like sort of writing process it was so uninteresting I was just trying to become a master you know and it was felt very lucky that I encountered it wasn't the only book that I encountered but I did encounter this this book by David Shields called How Literature Saved My Life and it's you know it's sort of a book about his relationship to books and like and it's weird and it's digressive and it's actually like short mostly short little entries. Cool. And and very kind of literary. It's bouncing all around all kinds of books, but it's also very personal little stories about this and that. And it it felt to me, or I wouldn't have articulated it as such at the time, but it feels in retrospect like he was having such a good time writing it. It felt like he was so fascinating to himself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and not in a, I, I shouldn't have to say this, but not in like a navel gazing way. In a way of like, what what is this person? I call myself so interesting. Like as he talks about his childhood, or as he talks about you know his uh, the books that he loves, or he talks about his family, and and I think without me knowing it exactly at the time, I did get a kind of permission to be like, and again, like it it took me a while to realize what was happening, but to be to be writing stuff that felt fascinating not only because it was like interesting so-called subject matter but because it was like the unfolding understanding of who I might be something like that and I mean and it was like it kind of rooted in me like that as a because I don't know that I had read books that I I mean 
going back, I think I had other models for that. But there was something about that one that just kind of clicked with me. And I think part of what you are interested in in that delight is that interest in who you might be. But one of the things I noticed that you talked about was that it can also be uncomfortable. Yeah. Like we, I feel like we have this desire to know ourselves yeah. and to figure out who we are and then kind of be that person in the yeah. world, project that. And there's some comfort in, I think, accepting who you are. Yeah. Accepting like, oh, this is, this is kind of what I'm going to do. But then you talk about like, so it can be kind of scary yeah. to unknow yourself. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that part of that, I mean, I think, first of all, like, my experience anyway is that it's not, not every day, but like not infrequently, I'm reminded like, oh, I don't know a goddamn thing about myself. Yeah, right. You know, that, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and that feels like, you know, that it, to me, that feels like part of being an adult. And part of being an adult is realizing like, oh, we don't understand ourselves. We don't understand our, our motivations or, or sometimes even our desires. We probably understand a lot of them or plenty of them. But to imagine that we're completely known to ourselves and also a little bit like to have that as a, well, I was, I was parenthetical digression, whatever, right. to have that as an aspiration to get to the end of oneself or something like that. I don't know about that either. But, but the other thing, sort of like what you were talking about in terms of like how we then are sort of in a way required encouraged for sure to project that self-knowledge that self-mastery whether it be because you're like a personality in some kind of way or because you're in school and you're getting graded on on you know being good basically um on being complete in a certain kind of way i feel like that's sort of lonely and sad and it feels like sort of fun and curious and terrifying and, and unnerving when you are like, all, oh, the, these sort of things that I know about myself or I imagine I know about myself are actually less stable than I think. And furthermore, the amount of things that I don't know about myself probably greatly outnumbers <laughs> what I do know. And a lot of the shit that I don't know about myself is, is not like the sweetest things. Right. <laughs> you know and that's right yeah and that's i mean that's part of the that's part of the thing you know it's like it's so fun to me to be around adults and when i say adults i don't i don't care how old they are but people who are like yeah aren't we complicated yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> who like laugh at the idea of purity right yeah, I feel like you don't talk explicitly about purity much, yeah. but it's it's really th- there throughout. Yeah, totally. This idea of again needing to be like something cleanly and clearly. Yeah. And and all these desires that we might have that are like messed up in one way or another. Like yeah. we're just going to we're just going to get rid of those. We're going to tamp those down. I'm yeah, thinking back right. to like this conversation I had a f- few months ago with Hannah Zeven who runs a new magazine Parapraxis about Freudian but oh, Freud neat. and psychoanalysis, oh, which is, it's completely about all that stuff as well. Yeah, like yeah. that we can never really fully know who we are. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff that we might not notice about who we are is probably stuff we are trying not to notice. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing about like that, which I think is really important to be like, oh, right. Like I'm a, I'm a really complicated person. One, of course it, if we acknowledge that to ourselves, but also sort of, yeah, I think it it permits a kind of understanding of other people that, again, to me, feels like a way more sort of satisfying way of being alive as opposed to the alternative, which is like, let me not notice what about myself is, let's say, unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and as I don't do that, then I can put, be, a, be a cop to everyone else. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because they because they slipped they let their little part out yeah. <laughs> so but the other thing that I think is is really important about this too is that among the things that we don't seem to like to acknowledge in a certain kind of way which is also a kind of frailty like our shittiness constitutes to me a kind of frailty you know and and when I say shittiness I don't mean that in, a, in an evaluative way actually I mean it's hard to I mean it as like 
yeah, we're people, we're changing, you know, we're like things, but, and, but another one of those things that seems to me is often and sadly sort of suppressed or repressed, is probably the word, is our heartbrokenness. And that feels to me like just another, like a very significant way that we, we withhold ourselves from each other. So our capacity to be sort of gentle and tender and curious about each other seems to me withheld when we're not like, oh, yeah, the other thing is that I'm actually very heartbroken. Always. 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 Yeah. And I have enough experience to imagine that you are too. (laughs) So that was where the pleasure came from in the writing then, was getting to allow yourself to explore, unknow yourself, explore who you were and what you were interested in in the world too, not just, you know, in a navel gazy sort of way. Yeah, for sure. And like to be like very brass tacks, it would be like, oh, today is the day that I write about this thing. Like, I know that this part of the essay that I need to get to today, I'm going to be thinking about this experience of my life. And to come to a place in my writing where I'm like, I wonder what happened. <laughs> like, it's my history. <laughs> it's, I, like, I lived through it. But to be like, oh, I've already sort of slotted into a thing, probably walking around with the thing as a kind of, you know, I know what happened. Right. But to be have a relationship to my writing, to be like, man, I... I can't wait to find out all about that thing that I lived through, you know? And I've been thinking about like this way for like 35 years. That's going to be interesting. So I'm curious how it was moving from the longer essays yeah. in the Joy book back to the delights. Well, two things are, are going on here. One is that I was writing them at the same time. Half of the delights I was writing, that's why I was writing Inciting Joy. And... And a couple of the delights actually went into Inciting Joy. Cool. Yeah, they became parts of Inciting Joy, uh-huh. which is interesting. Yeah. But that form, and for your listeners, that form is like I write them by hand, I write them daily, and I write them um, 30 minutes or less. It's really fun. Yeah. It's really fun, like as a practice. Yeah, just to sort of sit down, you know, it's not going to take a long time. You have a question, something was like really, something delighted you. You took a walk. Your friend gave you paw paws. <laughs> like, what is that about? <laughs> that is, uh, to me, it's very satisfying. You know, it's four years since I finished the first book. To get back to this form just felt like, oh, this is fun. And also, like, curious, too. Like, oh, I wonder what this is going to be like this time around. Like, I, I don't think I feel like I, I, ha- I don't think I felt like I had it down. I felt like, I definitely felt like I was relearning the kind of process, but I also was like, it, it remains sort of weird to me in a certain kind of way. Like I didn't nail it. And one of the things that I kind of resist in this is that because you do it every day and because it is a practice, you could do it without, without doing the things that I like to do in writing, which is unknow myself. And it still allowed, it kept on allowing me to like, yeah, unknow myself. I remember as you were writing these at one point, you said to me something about anger, there being more anger in this set of delights. Yeah. And actually, I wonder if, if we could talk about one of them. Yeah. I just thought it was so, I don't know if beautiful is the right word, but there's a formal thing going on in the minor cordiality. Oh, yeah. And also there's anger and there's also this grace yeah. at the same time. Yeah. What one does that have? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so the reason Ross didn't know what I meant is that I had read a review copy of the Book of More Delights before the interview. And this is why review copies say, check with the publisher before quoting from this. Because sometimes revisions aren't finished yet. I reminded Ross which essay it was. And he gave me some news that kind of threw off my interviewing plans. That changed. It changed? Yeah, that came out. Oh, it came out. I mean, that essay is in there, but that section of it changed. Oh, really? Yeah. I should read it. Okay. And then we could talk about yeah. it on the floor. Yeah. And this is actually a really good example of, of how the form remains strange to me in a way because that these versions are different enough that you can see that the revision process, you know, that that there were, you know, that it was sort of like the the form didn't confine the amount of revision that could happen. The form didn't. It was like these are sort of, in a way, like the beginnings of these longer potentially meditations or more difficult meditations or often meditations that I don't yet even know how to do. Yeah. 
This one is called The Minor Cordiality. There's a species of human I so adore, I realized, I felt, as I drove today by an old farmhouse on the corner of the bottom of a big hill. And the species of human in this case was in the shape of a big burly fella in overalls with long stringy hair and a bountiful beard who, leaning forward on his rocking chair, tossed a wave at me in the shape of a peace sign, along with a little butterfly of a smile. It might be this minor cordiality, waving from the porch at, I'm presuming, whoever goes by. I'm telling you, the ease and skill with which he dispatched his wares made me feel like it was his his vocation, his calling. It so warms my heart today, in part because just a few days ago, not a hundred yards away on this very road, heading to the same place, I passed someone who seemed like a volunteer fireman, pickup truck with magnet light on top flashing, meant, I would learn, to dissuade anyone from continuing. Though since he was parked on the side of the road, I thought it meant caution, not stop. I kept going until I heard him start yelling and saw him in my rear view waving me back. And when I got back to him, he leaned in my window, his Kids R Us badge dangling from his lanyard, and he asked me, sort of excited, imitating the questions cops love to ask when they pull you over. Cops love our documents, and though the syllogism might not exactly hold, I'll offer it anyway. If we give a shit about documents, we too are cops. Where I was going in such a hurry. By the fourth time he asked, smiling now as he was, titillated it seemed at this meager scrap of power, though I didn't see it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have been surprised if he had an erection. A chubby, at least. Where are you going such, in such a hurry? Which seemed irrelevant to his duty of alerting people to the accident ahead and that we'd have to go another way. I do not have to tell you, and I'm not the first one to say so, but a badge will fuck you up. Whether it's this guy's plastic one or someone else's aluminum one or the color of our skin or our testicles or how much money we make or the language we speak or our citizenship of a given, duh, this, country, our badges fuck us up royally. I don't care who we think we are. Hashtag unbadge. Anyhow, after I grumbled, I'm going to the supermarket. I spent the next two hours fantasizing that I'd said, none of your goddamn business, or eat me, or your mama's. And because I didn't say any of those things, I was stuck also fantasizing about mauling this dude, who, from this angle, looked to me like the second string center on my 1990 JV football team, yanking his badge from his milky neck, slinging him to the ground, stomping him a little bit. I don't actually know if you can stomp a little bit. And as he's crawling away, like a cherry on top, out of a Cormac McCarthy novel, asking him where he's going so fast. Friends, here's the thing. I've spent a good while, not inordinate, but far more than the allotted 30 minutes in which I try to corral these thoughts, first draft, yes, trying to get my head around this not-quite-blow-offable rage, so fully formed, so embodied, hair-trigger, you might say, even if the trigger is on a rage that stays most often pointed inward, that it seems to come from the long memory, epigenetic seems again the right word, of badged motherfuckers telling my folks where they can be and where they can't, what they can do and what they can't. This neighborhood, this pool, this sidewalk, this restaurant, this water fountain, this college, this church, this movie theater, this basketball court, this job, this stage, this hospital, this relationship, this land, this life. All of which seems useful rage to contemplate, critical rage I've heard it called, though needful rage I might say too, particularly as it helps us imagine abolishing the conditions by which the rage came to pass rather than take ownership of the conditions and inflicting them on someone else. Particularly if the rage does not become the ground of our gathering and our imagining and our dreaming, as it has threatened to do here. If the rage is not its own objective, by which I mean, if the rage is a bridge to love. There is a reason an alternative title for this book is The Book of Despites. In addition to the porch wavers and their ilk, the hat tippers, the head nodders, the thumbs uppers and fist pumpers, are whoever makes it their business often, but by no means only, 
people working in diners, post offices, laundromats, cafes, supermarkets, bookstores, bakeries, train stations, etc., to call us baby, or babe, or honey, or sweetheart, or love. There are angels in this world who call people they don't know love. Some of them, and this makes my heart a flock of giraffes, a gaggle of manatees, are like 20 years old. Sugar sometimes, too, people say. Along with pal, or cousin, or brother, or youngblood, or here in Indiana, and this I had to check wasn't fighting words, for I'm really not from here, bub. Bub means pal. It means friend. Or what's good, which might be one of the subtitles of this book of despites. And who, in the busy cafe, or bakery, or Vietnamese joint, or pizzeria, or library, seeing you seen there are no more seats, invites you to sit at their table simply by pointing or moving their stuff or pushing the chair out with their foot and probably smiling. Who smiles at you and who lets you merge when you're driving and who holds the door at the elevator? Who asks, could you use this? And who stays with you when they see you need help? And who tracks you down to give you the wallet you left on the train? And who helps when your doggy takes off? And who swipes you in when they see your ticket's not working? And who stops when you blow a tire or the radiator's shot? And who gives directions when you ask? And who walks you there? <laughs> it both goes bigger and more specific yeah. in terms of what you're actually, what the rage is about. Yeah, yeah. But then it also doesn't go into this other story. Yeah, which feels like a, another kind of writing thing, particularly about a write, about this is a writing thing, it feels like. That's a story that's so interesting to me, the part that got cut out. And basically, my friend um, Brooke was, she's a director, and she was putting on a show at La Mama in New York. And I had been helping them load in the set all day. <laughs> and as I was getting ready to go in, you know, because I was comped in, because I was effectively part of the crew, the dude taking tickets under his breath said something like, these people are always trying to get in for free. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it, I like lost my mind. I was, you know, there's like a handful of times where I was like close to like, you know, strangling a stranger. And, <laughs> and that was one of them. And I was like, I just, it, it just, boom, it pushed a button so hard. And a button in a way, like, I feel like I got closer to articulating what that button might actually be. You know, it's not just like someone, you know, hurt my feelings. It's almost like, damn, like the way that that triggered something for you. In this new version of the essay, I'm like, yeah, that's not just about you. When I sort of bring up this epigenetic, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you, you know, yeah, bummer. He's like, it was a dick to you. But it's a little bit like, ooh. <laughs> it's time for another break. When we come back, you'll hear me um, telling Ross why. I thought his earlier version was better. Stick around. Interstates, Alex Chambers. I'm talking with Ross Gay about his new book, The Book of More Delights. It comes out on Tuesday. To prep for this interview, I read the advanced reader's copy, and I wanted to remind Ross how his minor cordiality essay ended in the version I had. You said, my pointing finger, too, was very close to his face. I remember him wincing a little and looking into the sky and blowing his smoke out the side of his mouth, away from me. Motherfucker, you better, I was glaring. In fact, he was leaning away from me, a little braced for what might be about to come, for what was oncoming. And God, I bet you he just wanted to be left alone. You know that feeling? <laughs> it's pretty good. It's a good ending. It's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, personally, I actually think that ending still gets at that bigger thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly yeah. it's about a bigger thing than yeah. just him being a dick to you and you yeah. reacting. Yeah. I don't know. I think what I liked about the original, and I don't know as an interviewer if I'm, if it's like I'm allowed to critique your change. Oh, please do. <laughs> <laughs> please do. You probably won't have a lot of chance to do that, you know? <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What I liked about the original was that I feel like I've seen you talk about fantasies of of doing something rageful. Yeah. This was an actual moment where we heard an anecdote of you mm. just about yeah. actually physically doing something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it turns at the last second 
it turns to what that guy's experience was also. Yeah. And is also reflecting mm. and reverberating with this bigger idea throughout the book, too, about how we're all complicated. Yeah. And, like, we yeah. all mess up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, that's not—I mean, he was channeling something mm-hmm. that is cause for legitimate epigenetic rage. Mm-hmm. And also he was a person. Yeah, totally. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So that's why I like the original ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a good like writerly thing too, which is that that wasn't the original either, by far. <laughs> by far. That makes sense. You know, like the yeah. trying to figure out like where it was getting to, I brought the whole thing with about the theater in. So that was an, an, a way to kind of like in a way, unknow the experience. You know, I just had the experience. Uh, I had the delightful experience. Then it sort of led me to be like, well, why is this so delightful? And then it led me to this story with Brooke. But it took me a while, actually, to sort of, to try to figure out, like, oh, what's a good example of of the opposite of that minor cordiality? Like, the minor shittiness. Right. <laughs> and that's, you know, as, as you know, it's a kind of, it's a good example, and it's and the way you pointed out makes me think, yeah, it's a better example than I thought too, because it does sort of it puts the guy on the hook, but it also yeah, it just shows the thing of like man, a little bit everyone wants to be left alone. Yeah, it puts I feel like it puts the guy on the hook. It puts you a little bit on the hook too. Yeah, yeah, and then shows this kind of parallel. Yeah, experience. Yeah, even if at the same time there's still the history of brutality yeah, yeah, <laughs> enfolded yeah, yeah. into all that. Yeah, sure. In another delight called The Complimentary Style, a server at a cafe compliments him on his style. And at first you're like, ah, hey. <laughs> and then you kind of notice that she's complimenting everyone. And you're like, is this just kind of a, a thing? And you end with, uh, at least in the draft that I have, the version I have, you end with the massage, your massage therapist saying to you, you're always smiling, aren't you? Always have that big smile. I wonder what's behind that. Well, I think that's such a great question, in part because it feels to me like a really useful question for a number of reasons. Like, one was probably, one, I think it's like it's useful to be like, are you, in fact, always smiling? And why? Are you always happy? I'm not always happy. I think I'm probably not always smiling, too. But... But in in her in that context, she was probably like I was just like beaming, and, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like I don't know I don't know what else was going on, but it but it felt like it feels like a really interesting conclusion to an essay in which I'm sort of wondering about the kind of utility, and maybe like a little bit like the manipulativeness, maybe, but and also the survival, the need to sort of appeal in a certain kind of way. And this is a book called The Book of Delights. And what I think is very interesting about this book called The Book of Delights, The Book of More Delights, is that they're often not delightful. They're threaded through with things that are undelightful. At the same time, it's so interesting to me, there's a certain kind of sometimes response to those essays, and we've talked about this, that you would think that they're just delightful. Like, you might get the impression, like, even as I'm reading, like, you know, some reviews for this book that's about to come out, I'm like, damn, I wonder if they read past, like, number 13. <laughs> and, of course, always there are, there are very good readers of the, and, and interesting reviews and commentaries on the book. But there is something about that, and I don't know exactly what it is, but I felt like that thing of, like, oh, you're always smiling, I wonder what's behind that, has some kind of vibration against the idea of the Book of Delights. Maybe implied is like, yeah, there's something behind that. One of the complications that I think comes up a lot when you're using your own life as material, writing about yourself, and writing in the kind of very personal voice that Ross does, as you heard, one of the complications is that people get a sense that who you are on the page is who you are. Which is not to say that the narrator is a complete fiction or lie, but that the Ross on the page is one that he's constructed. I've had this experience where people haven't seen me for a little while, they've read the book, and then they see me and they like look at me like they know me differently. Or or like they don't know me because they've been so with me, but they haven't seen me for like and there's that's that's a feature of the I think the fact that it is sort of diaristic, chronological, the voice, 
It's a very the, personal. The very personal voice. Like all of those things that we're talking about, they're kind of like trying to be in conversation with you while I'm on the page. But there is this other thing which I cherish, and it's called privacy. <laughs> and I feel like the older I get, the more I cherish it. And it might be the more that I, I witness its obliteration, <laughs> the more I cherish it. So anyway, so that's absolutely the case. Like whenever I'm writing quote unquote personal essays, probably built into them is going to be like tremendous privacy. I think that's probably the case. I did want to just talk a little bit more about Susan Sontag and Paul Goodman, her review of, or her elegy for Goodman. Can you just talk about what you got from reading that? Yeah. Susan Sontag has this beautiful elegy for the writer Paul Goodman. And it's it's in her book, Under the Sign of Saturn. And... In it, she, I think what's so moving to me about it is that I think I think early on in the essay, she's sort of, she's away, she's maybe in like France or something, and she's like writing and she has very few books. She's sort of like intentionally having very few books, as I recall. But one of the books she always has, she always has like a Goodman book, I'm pretty sure. I don't know if it was Growing Up Absurd, but some Paul Goodman book. And by the end of the essay, we learned that he, she considers him the most important American writer. And, but early on, she also says that the first couple times that they met, he was a dick. And she kind of suspects that he was like, just wasn't taking her serious because she was a young woman. And she doesn't get out of thinking that. She doesn't like, she's not like, nah, that wasn't it. She's kind of like, yeah, I think, as I recall in the essay, she was kind of like, yeah. And then she goes on to sort of laud his writing and what he meant to her as a as a public intellectual and a figure, you know, and there are all of these things. And among those things is that he was openly gay or bisexual in, you know, maybe in the 50s or something. He was a writer who did not, quote unquote, stay in his lane. He just, he wrote about, you know, like psychology. He wrote about pedagogy. He wrote about like, sort of social culture stuff. He wrote poems politics, such an interesting figure. And it to me, it is so moving because she is able to sort of regard this person uh, as a complicated person. It's like this person being like, oh yeah, I didn't like this part about him. And then all this other stuff was wild, amazing. You know? <laughs> um, which I think is, is sometimes difficult these days to come back to that, right. that desire for purity. Mm-hmm. You know, And it is... That thing about being an adult, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. It feels like really refreshing to me to witness. You know, I've been grown. You know, I think of people who are grown, who are like able to be like witness that people are not not everything about everyone is something that you're going to admire. <laughs> yeah, and that and the problem too with, I mean, the obverse of the kind of canceling of people or like saying, oh, this person's completely horrible is the the other side of it is like, oh, this person's just great. Yeah. Yeah. And doesn't have any, th- any problems. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also like to me a kind of an ungrown way of, mm-hmm. you know, imagining creatures. <laughs> creatures. <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't That's make true. any sense. It doesn't make any sense. We, I mean, it makes sense that we might it makes perfect sense that we might aspire to present that way, but it makes no sense in terms of like knowing ourselves or each other or just like, yeah, being a person. Yeah. Knowing the many things that I have been in the course of this last month. (laughs) (laughs) Not all of them great. (laughs) Not all of them great. I'll tell you what. So yeah, that's like a really, it's a, it's a beautiful elegy, and and not only for that reason, but also because she does say this thing about Paul Goodman, which is like, you know, he he was sort of in and out of favor as a public intellectual too, because he wasn't he was like one of these he wasn't like towing a line. Seemed like he sort of had these uh, these ideas, and he was what I think of as like a proper proper kind of public intellectual, 
he was thinking. And he wasn't like, oh, shoot, I better not say this because I'm not going to get on MSNBC anymore. (laughs) He was like, nah, these are the ideas I'm having. This This is what I'm seeing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not trying to be liked. Not trying to be liked. Yeah. Yeah. In some way, that liked thing, and I don't know what it is. It's another show. It'll take a longer conversation. But right. that liked thing and that privacy thing overlap, too. Absolutely. I was thinking the same thing. When you just said, there's a bunch of stuff you've been in the past month. Yeah. And I was thinking, that's not exactly what the privacy is about. No. It's not about hiding all the ways we mess up. No. 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 That's a different kind of, that's a messed up kind of privacy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a... Yeah, it's great. And that's 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 right. And that's like a how is it different, actually? Just Well, I think it's different. I do too, for the record. Because (laughs) the way I see it is when you just said there are all these different ways like I've maybe messed up or been someone who's not a person I might be like proud of showing to the world in the past month. I'm not trying to say that what it should be is just putting all those out there. Yeah, yeah. But that the privacy you're talking about isn't about hiding all the ways we mess up. It's, I know. It, well, to some extent, yeah. it's like the part of this thing, like because we do think of privacy, it's like it would be nice not to have all kinds of corporations have information about what you look at on the Internet to be guiding what you might want to buy. Sure. That would be really nice. So in some way, like part of the privacy is like, no, you don't get to come into my house so that you can manipulate me. You don't get to determine my choices. You don't get to know how I make my suffer. If I want you to, you can. There used to be all of these. <laughs> used to be. Even as I say used to be, I also just want to acknowledge, like, I think, maybe, or maybe not, but like the idea of like the sanctity of one's interiority. Not to mention, like, what I'm going to do. Like, well, you know, it's none of your business. That whole thing, like, none of your business. The sanctity of one's interiority. That phrase got me thinking. When we're constantly scrolling and liking content, we're not just supplying corporations with ever more complex ways to sell us stuff. We're also not giving ourselves the space to have an interior life, which involves noticing the world around you. You can remedy that by writing for half an hour about what delights you in the midst of the myriad exploitations that populate the world. You can draw, you can just pay attention. The other evening I was walking the dog, coming home toward the blue sky, just beginning to darken, and I saw a man sitting in the grass by the street. His head was on his knees. I wondered if he was okay. No, he wasn't, that was clear. And I told myself I should go ask how he was doing. And then I thought about how worn out I was by my various responsibilities, and who knew what it would turn into, driving him somewhere, inviting him in, and I decided to walk on. I was glad to get home, and I wonder now if he was okay, and why he was out alone, and whether it might help if there was more housing in our city, maybe more community. And later, I sat down and wrote about it for a few minutes. I found myself wondering, too, whether I could become the kind of person who stops to help. Look, the fact that I sat down and wrote some sentences didn't help the guy. But I might not have given it any thought at all if I hadn't sat down to wonder about who I was and who I might become and what the world could become, too. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you liked what you heard, I've got a couple requests. Drop a few dollars our way maybe $10 a month. You'll be supporting this show, local news, and all kinds of other great local programming. You can do that at wfiu.org slash donate or by calling 800-662-3311. Also, if you think it was a good show and you have a friend who's been listening to a lot of podcasts that maybe aren't so good and they're feeling kind of sad lately, tell them about this one. You'll feel good and hopefully they will too. All right, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Jillian Blackburn, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Jay Upshaw, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. 
Special thanks this week to Ross Gay. All right, it's time for some found sound. was 1 a.m. on the hottest night of the year, recorded by Patsy Ron. Thanks, Patsy. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Riding back at the top of the